Curious Naked Diatribes. Nuestra esperanza es que algún día cambie nuestra situación, que se nos trate a las mujeres con respeto, justicia y democracia. Our hope is that one day our situation changes, that women are treated with respect, justice and democracy. Comandante Ramona of the Zapatista Army for National Liberation. Welcome back to the third and final installment of my conversation with Dr. Alex Kaznabish on the Zapatistas 30 years after their uprising in Chiapas, Mexico. In part two, Alex talked about how the Mexican government has dealt with the Zapatista movement over the years, the San Andres Accords, and how the EZLN differs from other revolutionary movements in Latin America. You can find a link to that episode in the show notes. For an MP3 of the entire uninterrupted interview, please click on the link in the show notes. And now, part three of a conversation with ago, Dr. Alex Kaznabish. Who were at the forefront are now the kids who were born into that struggle right. and have grown up within that context. So right. I think that's a love, that's an amazing, it's not like, oh, Lenin. It's not like, oh, Che Guevara. It's not looking right. back to Marcos and saying, oh, that was our great revolutionary hero. We're trying to live up to him. It's like, no, actually, we, the the generations coming of age now are are the are the, 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 the vanguard of the revolution precisely because they're the ones who have been raised within it. And I think that's a beautiful message. Yeah, yeah. So going back to this collective mm-hmm. liberation, it's not about uh, any individual figure. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, governments t- typically want to like, okay, find the leader, take, take them totally. out. You Ex- know? Exactly, um, right? Yeah. yeah. So can you provide some sort of a framework in talking about whether or not the Zapatismo has succeeded or failed or, you know, how do we mm. understand mm. that? Yeah, this is a classic. This is as a social movement scholar, like I, I, I'm, yeah, I, I appreciate this question so much. And I think it is an important one for sure. Um, I think people get hung up on measures of success and failure, particularly in liberal democracies, in a way that often ends up just coming down to a narrow accounting of like, oh, how many seats do you have in parliament, in Congress, in the Senate, whatever, like who's in the presidency. I mean, one of the lessons the Zapatistas tried to teach us um, very vigorously in the 90s was that it doesn't matter like which personality is sitting in the driver's seat. The fact is, is the whole infrastructure remains the same, right? And if the whole infrastructure remains the same, we'll never have any better say in that. So, I mean, I think um, in that way, it frustrated a lot of people. Um, and, and, and to the same degree that, that I talked about before about their, their use of violence or their, their disavowal of the desire to seize power. I mean, a lot of people, and I think a lot of people who were allies too and continue to be allies, were sort of cynical about that and said, oh, well, well, look at Venezuela. Look at what Chavez is achieving, um, you know, under a much more sort of typical socialist top-down revolutionary intent, right? Like use oil revenue, seize the state, defend the state. And people got excited about that in the way that um, outsiders often get excited about any struggle they're not a part of. They're like, look, it's further along. Isn't that so impressive? Shouldn't we now replicate that model? But look at Venezuela now and look at the far southeast of Mexico, right? And after Chavez's very suspicious and untimely death, um, like I think, you know, you have the, the exactly what the Zapatistas, like what we were just talking about, the cutting off of the head of a movement, it's, it's disillusion after that. And even if the struggle continues, it continues in this incredibly impoverished way. And 
Zapatistas have always been super clear about that. They're like, there isn't, we, like, we're not trying to get somewhere and then it's done. It's, this is a struggle for collective liberation that we literally are just going to walk every single day of our lives, never arrive at that final point. There's something I think incredibly humble, human, and beautiful about that sentiment that most revolutionary movements forget, that it's not about just achieving the defeat of the enemy. It's also about acknowledging that in order to uh, make a new society, you actually have to make new social relations, new institutions, new ways of relating to each other and even seeing who we are because that's how a revolution endures. It doesn't endure by creating new laws and having people follow them. Those laws can always be changed. But if you change the way that people see themselves in the world and the the systems they're a part of, in that way, I think Zapatismo is a, is a total success. It's amazing. And when it's been a long time since I've been to Zapatista territory physically, but when I was there in the um, early 2000s, mid 2000s, it was an incredible. Exp- it was completely banal, I'll say, <laughs> but also incredibly uh, heartwarming and inspiring to be like you driving down the road, right? It's just a, it's a, it's a highway, and you pass a sign that says in Spanish, "Welcome to territory in rebellion." Um, everything for everything, everything for everyone, nothing for ourselves. And then it says like, "No drugs, no guns, underneath all this kind of stuff." Right. And then you enter into Zapatista territory and you're like, you, you know, you go to a, a village, I went to Oventique, one of their, the five centers of good governance in Zapatista territory. And you're just, you're met by ordinary humans, some of whom are wearing balaclavas, many of whom are not. It's a village, it's a town, it's like people are going about their daily lives, they're making textiles, they're growing coffee, they're, they have a communication center, they have a place where they uh, make food and sell it to visit. Like, it's just, this is what real life looks like in a place that is not trying to build a scene or a spectacle or a, a moment, but is actually trying to build over the long term, deep roots of a different way of being in the world, in many ways based on tradition. This is the thing that people think, oh, they're indigenous, they want to just go back to... But this is like a super important point, the communities that the Zapatistas struggle to merge out of in the 50s in Mexico... They're actually not the traditional indigenous communities. They're not the places that have existed for decades and even a century. They're these communities essentially of exiles, refugees, people who don't, who can't find land elsewhere and come together in the jungle and in the canyons, find each other and are forced to grapple with that reality. So they're, in some ways, they're doing what many indigenous scholars in the North talk about today, they're calling it self-conscious traditionalism, where they're looking back to for signposts, for ways of orienting themselves, but they're resolutely looking forward. They're not just trying to reinvent the past. They're like, this is how, you know, this is what makes us us, but how can we take this principle and reinvent it to, for a modern world, right? So they're, they're focused on diversity and autonomy, for example, these kinds of things. So like as a movement that has actually succeeded in controlling its territory and building a new way of being in the world, it's been an absolute success. And I think one of the few enduring examples of that struggle towards autonomy in a world that's very hostile to it. If you want to measure it on the basis of um, 
more conventional revolutionary metrics of success. And this is where the grumpy Marxist Leninists will always yell at me and say, but they still don't <laughs> control the state or they still don't, you know, well, yeah, that's true, you know, and they are still, there's no doubt. I'm not trying to paint a, an unnecessarily rosy picture. Life is hard. Uh, there is no, you know, they haven't somehow arrived at a place where they don't have to worry about violence directed against them or um or you know they're not totally economically secure obviously like life is hard without any of the resources the state might provide to like build schools or um get goods to market or build a hospital or whatever and yet 30 years later there they are and i think one of the incredible metrics of their success is yeah when you go through uh areas in chiapas where people were not they, they weren't original Zapatistas and they may not even call themselves that now, but they, they essentially are, are living life on Zapatista territory because they're making use of all those institutions because they would just work better than the state does. You know, they're fairer, <laughs> they're more just, they're more transparent, they're actually available. And I think what an awesome lesson for the, for Northern radicals and revolutionaries to learn because so much of our activism is based around the creation of scenes and, and really quite exclusionary ones where often if you don't speak the right language, you don't know the right revolutionary ideologies, or you don't present yourself in particular kinds of ways, you're really not welcome. And they tend to be ephemeral and short-lived. And I think rather than, than that, thinking about how one builds a movement that has deep roots, that is always predicated on recognizing the humanity of other people in struggle, and often like has to take the time to have a really difficult, sometimes um, difficult to resolve conversations about how we're doing, what we're doing, where we're going, and what we're building towards, but all in the context of a life that you're building together, you know, not, not just some, like, I'm running away and looking for a lifeboat, but that we are standing right where we are and building the alternative that we know we need to survive in this world. And we hope that in setting that dignified example that other people will want to join in too. And I think that's I mean, I just wish in this moment where, you know, a far right populism is really like making a lot of hay out of the global inequalities we're dealing with that, that, you know, people on the left would return to that too. That notion of like building a dignified common sense struggle on the ground that makes sense to people because it helps them meet their needs right there. I mean, really, I think that's the best, um, the best current account I could give of the Zapatistas. And I think while it's not the kind of like sexy and then the bad guy was defeated and then we had everything we wanted, it's it's really like in our world, the probably the best outcome for a revolutionary struggle we could ever imagine. And what a testament 30 years later, you know, to be to be still standing your ground and, and defending that that dignified autonomy. Right, right. Alex, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your books on, on the Zapatistas. The first is called Zapatismo Beyond Borders. It was published in 2008 by the University of Toronto Press. And the second, Zapatistas, published two years later by Zed Books. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us what's covered in these two books and why you wanted to write those? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the, the first book, uh, uh, Zapatismo Beyond Borders, um, really like came out of my scholarly interest in in people like me um because as i was saying before right like my undergrad i spent every opportunity i could like writing papers or or, or learning about the zapatistas and and similar kinds of struggles uh when i finally decided to do grad school i i 
you know, I was equally interested in them. My master's was about that. I looked at the connection between independent labor in Mexico and the Zapatista struggle, and that was super rewarding, interesting, and fulfilling because the connection between labor and indigenous struggles in the global north is something that often doesn't make sense. Often those groups find themselves at, um, uh, opposed to one another. But uh, when it came time to do my PhD, I, I was really torn. I was, um, as somebody trained in anthropology, I have this deep and overriding anxiety about telling other people's stories for them when they don't need a gringo like me <laughs> dropping into their community <laughs> and telling those stories. Uh, they're Mexican anthropologists, historians, even Zapatistas, obviously, who were telling that story better. So I was really, I found myself like in a bit of an existential crisis. I'm like, I don't want to just tell a story about a movement that seems exotic and uh, go in, drop in for a year, even if that on the ground there, and then come back and tell this story to Canadian kids like me who are looking for inspiration. And then it just struck me. I'm like, well, why don't I look at the way that Zapatismo as a political philosophy and practice that's grown out of this incredible movement has and continues to circle the globe, the channels that it uses to do so, the effects it produces and the activist groups who are picking it up elsewhere and explicitly acknowledging their solidarity uh, with the Zapatistas and inspiration by them, but who are actually trying to ground it in their circumstances of struggle. And so I spent a couple of years uh, traveling across Canada and the States, interviewing a bunch of different activists who had been inspired, like me, by the Zapatistas. Some worked in NG very conventional NGOs. Some of them worked in radical filmmaking collectives. Some of them worked in, you know, indigenous grassroots solidarity or labor movements or whatever. But uh, that book is really about how political imaginations travel, why they travel, what people are hoping for when... Um, when they link their sense of possibility to someone else's struggle on the ground. And I, I didn't want to deny that a lot of this can have like really problematic overtones, like that tendency to romanticize, to exoticize, to commodify and consume other people's struggles is so, is so crummy in so many cases, even <laughs> right. when it's understandable. <laughs> but I also thought there was a lot of commentary at the time, right, in the early 2000s about how that, that that was the character of much of the solidarity with the Zapatistas. And I really disagreed with that. So just from my own experience. Uh, so that book was an attempt to make sense of that and to, to see how this imagination was traveling and sparking meaningful social change activity elsewhere on its own terms and in its own context. And that second book that I wrote was uh, a much more sort of popular introduction to the Zapatistas. Um, it's part of Zed's uh, Rebel series at the time, so I was really happy to write it. But for me, that was a really interesting project too, because it just, it allowed me to to hone in on, on the Zapatistas as this kind of like global revolutionary movement and to look at their roots in Chiapas, but also their connection then to um, the cycle of struggles that was happening kind of uh, on a global scale that were um, taking neoliberal capitalism and, and, the, and the dynamics of globalization at the time as their target and how they were achieving that or not. And so, yeah, thinking about the Zapatistas as examples of the spirit of rebellion, of the, like, a, like a manifestation of... Um, this kind of trans-historical rebel spirit that we see in every society at, at different times when, yeah, when ways of being kind of like become intolerable for ordinary folks because the world 
isn't going to let them live the lives uh, that they thought we, they were going to be able to. And, and what do they do in those conditions? So, um, yeah, it was it was a great uh, honor to write those books. And um, yeah, I really I really loved like that 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 process is not about me, but in many ways, when I look back on it now, it's uh, like I mean. I certainly learned much more from the Zapatistas than uh, than either of those books can fairly um, convey. But but that's like a super important part of my own revolutionary thinking, radical thinking, and uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure to have the chance to write them. Yeah. So uh, um, well, I'll leave a link to those books oh, in awesome. ad- addition you. to your your more recent work as well. Um, um, I'd like to conclude with your thoughts on the future of Zapatismo and, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, radical social movements more broadly. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we we are currently living through that moment, living up to that uh, cliched Chinese proverb that we are living through very, very interesting times. And I think it's funny because... Um, I, uh, as a social movement scholar, I definitely get this question a lot. You know, people, not this question, but questions about, oh, what's going to happen next? How do we know? And I, I always say, you know, as, as academics, we're great at uh, diagnosis and deconstruction and terrible at prediction. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so predicting is, is not something we do well. At the same time, I think, you know, um, like we're at a moment where almost all those options are in play again in a way that in moments in history when, you know, the the ruling class seems stable and the status quo seems fairly well watered and fed, you know, people struggle to find um, the inspiration for their, uh, their ideas of how life might be different. But right now it seems so easy. So many people are so dissatisfied uh, in so many parts of the world. I was just reading, um, uh, an article I think in the New York Times yesterday about this uh, this new rhetoric in the UK about uh, the slogan uh, "Broken Britain," right? People talking about, and so like think about this in in twenty twenty three we're we're living through a moment where all across like the some of the most overdeveloped, richest, most powerful nations on the planet are in the midst of a broad-based crisis of legitimacy, of democratic, um, our, our democratic institutions have been undermined and radically called into question, where we see uh, the, the digital networks that we were promised that would be our highways to a global communication you know, Shangri-La have instead become um, feeding tubes for every uh, conspiracy theory. And I think within this, like, I mean, people are just so desperate for inspiration, for, for visions of alternatives. Um, and I'm not even going to debase the the uh, right-wing populist response to this. While, while it's not my vision of transformation, I think we are remiss in dismissing it as some uh, like critics on the left have. I don't think it, it's, it's not... It's not hopeful. It's not humane. It's not dignified or good. But the one thing I'll give them credit for right now is that they are speaking powerfully back in ways that are clearly resonating with people against this kind of neoliberal technocracy, right? And the like that's 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 resonating with people. Um, 
So I think movements like the Zapatistas, I think, are now more urgently needed than ever, really. It's, I think, a wonderful thing that you're doing this episode right now on this issue, because mm-hmm, I would mm-hmm. love for people to think about this right now and to look. I mean, social movement struggle is a wonderful like uh, repository for these kinds of things. And I would really would encourage, like, if you're feeling lost right now, read about some of the really amazing struggles for collective liberation that have check out our past, right? And even in places like the States or Canada, we have lots of movements like these, right? That kind of like emerge from the same spirit as the Zapatistas that have been intentionally uh, covered over and forgotten and, and left out of our kind of authorized histories because, yeah, the ruling class doesn't want you to know that by joining forces with other people who are up against those cutting edges that you too can be powerful and you too can remake your world. They would rather have you believe that you have to invest in demagogues or in the status quo in order to make any change. And I think that the the enduring legacy of the Zapatistas is still that, that humble people acting from where they are situated can make a huge difference in the world and transform their lives and the lives of others in a way that make our world more connected, more humane, less violent, more democratic, more dignified, that they can like bring into being a real relation between peoples based on autonomy that is mutual um, and not exclusionary. So not about this, oh, it's my right not to wear a mask and fuck you. <laughs> but um, instead, this this mutual recognition of of dignity and of like, I mean, of difference amongst the the destinations that we're choosing for ourselves, right? That there might be a way forward that we can find that doesn't involve just buying into one person's or one party's vision of what the future has to be, that that can be much more open-ended. Um, and I think that that's, those are such important lessons. I mean, the Zapatistas today continue to do exactly what they've done since that first day of 1994, which is to defend... Well, maybe I'll reverse it to build and defend those actual like living examples of alternatives. And I just can't I can't say enough about that. I think once you go to work, once we leave our, you know, our social media cesspools and our individual kind of like either fantasies or nightmares of what's going on right now and what's going to come out of it. And you commit to going to do something with people around you who you find common cause with and in a spirit of building um, like humane, dignified and decent alternatives, like just you coming together with a few of your neighbors or coworkers or peers, like wherever you find yourself, um, begins to like cultivate that spirit. And that's one of the lessons that I think the left in the North forgets most often. Like we're fascinated by the Zapatistas media presence. We're fascinated by their iconography. We're fascinated by the revolutionary sort of ritual of, and that's all cool. Like I get all of that. Don't get me wrong. But most of that can in no way be imported easily to the global north, right? Like the context is totally different. We're not going to start like a revolutionary movement that looks just like um, an armed insurgency in the in the southeast of Mexico in Halifax, right? But if I take the best lessons that it means concretely building relations amongst people who don't always see common cause in terms of who they are, but that we begin with that that principle that alternatives is something that comes from the, the grassroots and not from the top down, that what we're trying to do is not create 
a vast like sort of map of sameness, but recognize difference amongst our struggles, communities, identities, and then build towards a way of like working towards a space in common that we can all live together. Like those little, those things become so possible in a way that abstract discussions and debates over tactics or ideology or whatever just don't they don't get us there. So for me, I think um, the Zapatistas will be here for another 30 years easily, right? Um, I'm not trying to uh, look through my very imperfect social movement crystal ball but when I say that, but I think, you know, the, the, the work they've done simply isn't going to be washed away in any kind of way right now. And in fact, um, like we can see that as a real example of alternative building um, that's durable and meaningful. And for the rest of us, yeah, I would say let's return to that that notion of building the struggle where we're at, learning the best lessons from lesson, from struggles like the Zapatistas, which again are not about copying them, but much more about embodying that spirit, right? Of connection, this kind of like commitment to endless, diff- sometimes very difficult conversations with each other. And I don't mean just purely like conversational, but actually working with people who you don't always like, you know, who aren't just sort of cookie cutter example of you or what you imagine the world to be like, but challenge you to think about what this sort of diverse, dignified life would look like. And then, yeah, just to begin in very partial and imperfect ways to work towards that. You know, it's never going to be finished. It's always going to be a journey we're on. But if we're committed to that, then at least you won't end up in a space where you're like, oh, yeah, it seems like a great idea for a, um, a whites-only nation on the in the northwest of uh, America somewhere where we're going to create our utopia and drive everybody else out. That becomes a lot less likely than... Um, then that spirit of, yeah, um, we're all being ground up. Let's find a way to get past this together and, 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 and to chart a new course at a, partic- at a time when um, those possibilities are really richly alive again. I'd say that's one of the exciting things about right now. And like people feel down a lot of the time, stressed, anxious about our political context. But man, the ruling class has really demonstrated that it is both incompetent and disinterested <laughs> in managing this particular version of making the rest of us work for them. So let's use that disinterest and that incompetence to carve out really meaningful alternatives. And um, and we got to get to work doing that. And it begins with, yeah, with, with some of that boring person-to-person <laughs> work of figuring out how we're going to live together. Right. Amen. Well, I think we can all draw some inspiration from uh, the Zapatista movement and, uh, and, and find ways to uh, apply it to our own movements, our own personal growth. And I, I'd love to talk about this for the rest of the day, but we'll have to leave it there for now. Alex Kaznabish, uh, thank you so much for your time. It was, it was such a wonderful to, to speak to you today. Oh, thanks, Jason. I had a great conversation, too. Thanks for the invitation to be here and to, uh, yeah, to talk to your listeners. It's wonderful. You can find Alex's published works and media appearances on alexkaznabish.com. Look for the link in the show notes. For an MP3 of the entire uninterrupted interview, please click on the link in the show notes. Curious Naked Diatribes is part of the Javi Media Network on the web at javimedia.net. Send email to info at javimedia.net.
Avi Media. <laughs>